0: You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Father, we bow before you to declare that you are the living hope. And God, to confess that so often we place our hope in things that can never satisfy us. Maybe in future circumstances... Maybe in future material things, God, we place our hope in so many things whose foundation are crumbling before our very eyes. And I pray this morning, God, by the power, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, God, would you speak to us through your living word and draw us again closer to Jesus Christ that we might be transformed into his likeness. God, thank you. Thank you that you've promised to do that this morning as we open up your word. And so, God, do it. We pray. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're having trouble finding Ecclesiastes, flip your Bible open halfway, you'll land in Psalms, and go to the right, you'll hit Proverbs, and then you hit Ecclesiastes. I'm saving you of the pain when someone mentions an obscure book, and you're like, oh man, the people beside me are going to know that I don't know where this is. I just saved you, All right. Ecclesiastes chapter two, I'm so thankful to be here. I love your pastor. I still have fresh wounds in my back from when he stabbed me and left youth ministry, like so many people do, uh, but I've uh, grown such a unique friendship with him and I've been so blessed by him and I'm so blessed to be here this weekend and see just how the Lord is using him and see your love for your pastor. And I would just commend you to continue to love and support and to pray for him. I want to let you know that we've got a problem And our problem is a things problem and our problem is a result of a cultural experiment really that we all have been partaking in where we're testing the thesis and the thesis is this, can you find satisfaction in the things of earth? And what we're doing is we're accumulating as many possible things as we can and we're asking ourselves of these things, can we find satisfaction in them? Well, the search for satisfaction in the things of Earth is well summarized by the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. I wonder if you've ever heard of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. I'd like to share their story with you this morning. Well, Mr. and Mr. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There's Mr. Thing sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing almost hidden by a large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny and new. Things, things, things. Things to clean with and things to wash with and things to clean and things to wash. Things to amuse and things to give pleasure and things to watch and things to play. Things for the long, hot summer and things for the short, cold winter. Things for the big thing in which they live and things for the garden and things for the deck and things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things on two wheels and things to put on top of the four wheels and things to pull behind the four wheels and things to add to the interior of the thing on four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling and pleased as punch with things. Thinking of more things to add to things. Secure in their castle of things. Now I wonder if we can be tempted, like Mr. and Mrs. Thing, to believe that we will find satisfaction, that the search for satisfaction will be complete once we just have one more thing. I wonder if you could answer me this question this morning, if I only had blank. Then I would be satisfied. Now the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes is really interesting. He's asking this question, is there any meaning to life? And in order to answer it, he's not just looking at things and saying, oh, there's no meaning in that. Instead, he dives headfirst into the experience of these things to search out if there is any meaning, if he can find any satisfaction in these things. And this morning, what he wants to do for us is demolish this idea that we could find satisfaction if we just had one more thing. Now, let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 together. Solomon writes this, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure." For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." This morning, what we're going to learn from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 is this, that if I believe that I would be satisfied if I only had more, then I will experience that to be an empty pursuit. I will experience the vanity of believing that the search for satisfaction will be complete once I just have more or better things. And so Solomon wants to show us exactly what he experienced as he searched for satisfaction in the things of earth. And the first thing that I want you to note that he experienced was this, that when I pursue satisfaction in the things of earth, I experience the empty pleasures of play. Now, we're joining Solomon this morning on his quest to find satisfaction in the things of earth. And really, there's no one who's more fit to lead us on this quest See, Solomon, of all people, was the one who could put into his possession anything he wanted. Year after year, on Jerusalem's equivalent of Time magazine, there would be Solomon, world's richest man. If Solomon wanted something, he had in himself the resources to get whatever he wanted. And so there's no one who's so fit as King Solomon to answer this question. Can the things of earth fulfill the search for satisfaction. Now it's fitting that Solomon is qualified to do this because he is the man who does it. And so look at verse one. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with every pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, what Solomon is saying is he's going to possess every possible thing of earth. He's going to experience everything you can experience from the things of earth. And he's going to ask himself this question. Can I find satisfaction in this? It's as though there's like a conveyor belt that's running past Solomon, and on this conveyor belt are all the things you could possibly acquire for yourself, and he stops at each one, and he picks it up, and he tries to squeeze as much satisfaction out of everything of the earth that he possibly can. He tries to ask himself this question, can I find pleasure in this? And he picks it up, and the answer is no, and so he puts it down, and the conveyor belt keeps going and going, and he picks up these things and keeps asking the question, can I find satisfaction But in the end, after trying to enjoy himself by unlimited indulgence in the things of earth, look at what he says at the end of verse 1. But behold, this also was vanity. Now this word vanity, it means emptiness, it means meaningless, it means uh, useless. And what Solomon is saying is that he tried to squeeze every ounce of pleasure from the things of earth and still it left him empty, empty. He tested this, he tried this, and still he could not get pleasure or satisfaction from the things of earth. Now, the first thing he tried to experience were the the pleasures of play. And so at the end of verse 3, he says that on his search for satisfaction, he would do this, and the text says, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so Solomon would allow the things of earth to entertain him. And as they entertained him, he would seek satisfaction in the things of earth. With reckless abandon, he would give himself to the things that people do for pleasure, for satisfaction, to see if he could find it. And so look what he says in verse 2. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? The first pleasure that Solomon took up was the pleasure that's associated with comedy. And he said, maybe if I just have more experiences of laughter, then I will finally find satisfaction. But his declaration in the end is that this was mad. Now, the way that Solomon uses the word mad isn't like the kind of way that you sometimes hear a teenager use the word mad, where they're like, oh, man, this is mad sick. You've got to try this out. And it's also not the way that we often use the word mad, where it's like you're mad if if you think you can get satisfaction from laughter. Actually, what Solomon is saying here, the way that he uses the word mad in this context is is he's saying that laughter is actually morally perverse. And the reason why laughter can be morally perverse is because so often it reveals our acceptance for those things that are actually an abomination to God. It reveals that we actually often glory in the things that should be our shame. Not only that, laughter can cover up a passive aggression that we have at the world. And so maybe we're people who often make sarcastic remarks, and sometimes sarcasm is funny, but sometimes what sarcasm does is is it is hiding this kind of passive-aggressive truth. And in a sarcastic remark, there's this, if you dig under the layers, there's a little bit of passive-aggressive truth in there, and you're actually showing your dissatisfaction with the world or with some circumstance. Solomon says this of this pleasure. He says, what use is it? See, even though laughter can be a gift from God, even though Ecclesiastes chapter three in that famous poem that Solomon wrote, he would say there is a time for laughter immediately after he would remind us that the time of laughter subsides and there is a time that is needed of mourning. See, every joke ceases to be funny. Every laugh ceases to be laughed and is quickly overshadowed by the reality that we live in a broken and cursed and hurting and hard world. And so Solomon says that laughter and the search for pleasure in it is a useless pursuit. He writes that laughter can't help him escape from reality, that laughter distracts his mind for a moment, but when it fades, he remembers where he is in a broken world. And so we too, we can turn on the Netflix comedy special and we can spend an hour laughing at something, but there will be a time when uh, the oddities of the world that we're laughing at, that subsides the laughter and all of a sudden we're languishing in this broken world that we live in. Now the search for satisfaction in laughter won't please us and neither will the search for satisfaction in wine. And so Solomon moves next as he's experiencing the empty pleasures of play. He moves to wine and he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. In the search for satisfaction, Solomon turns to seeing if he can find pleasure and satisfaction by drinking. Now the type of drinking that Solomon's doing here isn't the type of drinking that like leads you on your knees, beside your toilet, like puking everything that you just drank. I think we can all agree no one is going to that person and tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, I think you've found satisfaction in life. Could you tell me how you did that? How did you get to this place of happiness? None of us are going to go to downtown Markham, find the person who's stumbling through the alleyway, who's been drinking all night, and say, hey, I think you've found the path to wisdom. Would you sit down with me and help me figure a few things out? Instead, Solomon says that he te- as he tested his heart with, wisdom, or, sorry, with alcohol, he said it was guided with wisdom. And what Solomon was doing was a calculated use of alcohol and wine to see if there is a way that he could use it to put him in a frame of mind where he could actually escape the pains and hardships of the world and enjoy and be satisfied in the things of earth. And so I imagine that sometimes maybe Solomon, you know, he is a king after all. And I think he probably had a few more stresses that we have in, than we have in our day. I wonder if he was like at the office, you know, and just the stresses of the kingdom are weighing down on his shoulders. And you see him at the coffee pot and he's looking tired and he's pouring coffee into a mug. And you look at what the mug says and the mug looks like this. It says, coffee keeps me going until it's acceptable to drink wine. Maybe Solomon would come home after a long day of work, And he would take off his kingly robes and his crown, and he'd be wearing a sweater that says this. It's wine o'clock somewhere. (laughs) Maybe you'd look on his wall. I can keep going here. Look on his wall, and you see a clock, and the clock comes up, and it says, no wine before nine. (laughs) But every number says nine. (laughs) See, he tried every kind of alcohol, every kind of way, at every kind of time, to see if it could make life satisfying. In fact, this might be the very reason that we run a drink to try and find a frame of mind where life feels good. But really what we're doing is just trying to numb ourselves to the emptiness that we feel in life, the lack of satisfaction we have in life, and the pain of this world. And I wonder if God has a word of warning for some in here. Maybe after a long day where it seems like the kids made it their express purpose to make you suffer, you're turning to wine to find satisfaction. Maybe after a day of work, when the stresses have just beat you down, instead of finding rest in Christ, you are finding rest in alcohol. Maybe you've been turning to drink to find romantic satisfaction in your marriage. Maybe you're turning to drink to forget the reality of some, something that you're afraid of, something like crushing debt or poor performance reviews at work, and the only way that you can escape the reality of this thing that you're terrified of is if you turn to drink. Maybe you turn to alcohol, and it actually reveals bigger identity issues in your life. Like you can't go on a date with your spouse unless you have alcohol, or you can't uh, be in a social environment unless you're drinking because you just don't think that people will appreciate you unless you've had a few drinks for. And there are many ways that we can turn to alcohol thinking we can find satisfaction in it. Solomon wants us to know this is vanity. Now, laughter and alcohol, they're not the only ways that we experience the empty promises of play and the empty pleasures of play. Many of us search for satisfaction in all different kinds of entertainment. And now entertainment companies are catching on to this, aren't they? And so you sit down and you watch an episode of, you say, I'm going to watch one show on Netflix and that show finishes and before the credits even roll, it pops into that little bubble and you have seven milliseconds to get to your computer and to turn off the show before the next show starts. And what's Netflix saying? Netflix is saying, if you just watch one more show, then you'll be satisfied. And so, people can binge watch entire s- seasons of television shows, and still that itch is not satisfied. And so, we open up our phones and we go into social media and Instagram and Facebook, and Instagram and Facebook have made it so that you can just keep scrolling, and there's endless content. And you're searching for satisfaction and something you could see, and, and you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And scrolling, yet you never run across something that eternally satisfies you. If we're honest, most of us have an embarrassing YouTube vortex that we have been down in our life where we just kept clicking related videos and we got to this place on the internet we didn't know existed and we didn't know that cats could be so cute when they were afraid the limited amount of laughter there made me think that I'm the only one who's been down that YouTube vortex. <laughs> and so we turn off the TV, we close our phones, and maybe we pick up video games. And what do video games promise? They promise that if you just play one more level, just play one more game, then you'll finally be satisfied. And video game creators, they've caught on to this. So that, do you know what the slogan for PlayStation is? The slogan for PlayStation is greatness awaits. That should make us scratch our head and yell at these PlayStations, are you kidding me? Are you really saying that greatness in our society, greatness in this world awaits for you when you sit in your basement and pretend to be Spider-Man for three hours? Is that where greatness is? Is that where satisfaction is found? And the answer is no. No. Some of us are more sophisticated and busy than that. We don't have time for TV, and we don't have time for video games, and so we can laugh at a time like this. But really, if we were to search our heart, if we were to dig deep down into our soul, we would find that we long for a day when we were freed from the pressures and responsibilities of life so that we could have just a few hours, maybe just a day uninterrupted by other people so that we could be entertained by something. And we believe that we would be satisfied if we could just have a day like that. And deep down, we believe that we can find satisfaction in the pleasures of play, but they are empty. Now, the next experience that Solomon wants to show us is that if we believe we can find satisfaction in the things of earth, we'll experience the empty pursuit of property. And so in verses 4 to 6, Solomon shifts his experiment, and next he'll test in the search for satisfaction to see if his home could provide satisfaction. And so in verse 4, it says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And I want you to notice first that the things which Solomon built for himself were the best things. And so he says, I made great works. Now Solomon, he sought to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Everything that he had would have been the best. They would have been great and so he would have built the best homes. The homes he built would have mirrored the architectural beauty of the royal palace he built in 1 Kings chapter 7 that said he took 10 years to finish. See, when Solomon built something, he was uh, so detailed to make sure that it was built in a way that it would be uh, created and suited for his satisfaction. He planted the most lavish gardens. They would have displayed the most beautiful flowers. They would have had the most ripe fruits, in abundant vineyards. But what Solomon wants us to see is that even if we have the best things, even if we have the greatest things that we could possibly have, we will still not find satisfaction in them. And so isn't it true every time you've bought the newest phone, you're so excited, you go home, you turn on the phone, and the first thing you see is a news article about how a newer and better phone is coming out. Isn't it, true? Isn't it funny how quickly that kitchen that you updated gets outdated? And so you finish your kitchen, and you're like, oh, man, I'm expecting to hear a knock on the door in a few minutes. Homes and Garden is coming to put this kitchen on their front cover. I'm sure of it. But they never come, and in three years, you're wondering if you're going to get a knock on the door, and the TV show Hoarders has come to take a film of your kitchen. And see, we can laugh at these things, but it's all too common for us to place our hope for happiness in better things. And so I wonder if there are some in here, the last time you felt joy was when that new phone or that new piece of technology or that new thing was in the mail. I wonder if there are some of us who the last time you had hope was when you hoped for a better thing, a better kitchen, something that would give you satisfaction. Maybe you feel some level of contentment now with things that you have, but that contentment is fueled by this hope that in some point in the future, maybe because you got a promotion, maybe because you won the lottery, but for some reason you have this hope that you will at some point have better things, that you will have a better car, that you will move to that bigger house, and you're okay with what you have now, but you are banking on the future hope that you will have better things someday. And Solomon wants us to hear that things will never satisfy. Can you answer me this question? How come the rich aren't universally happy? How come you know rich people in their life and they're not always beaming with a huge smile on on their face? They have all the things they could ever want. And yet, statistics would show that most of the time, rich people are even more depressed. And it's the people who have less that are more happy. Yet we buy into this lie that believing that the things of earth could satisfy if we just had the next best thing. Now, the magnitude of Solomon's creation is emphasized in that everything he builds is in the plural. Solomon was not a man of one thing, he was a man of many things. And so it says he had houses, he had vineyards, he had gardens, he had parks, he had all kinds of fruit trees and pools. Solomon, he would have had great homes everywhere. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, okay, listen, Solomon, he serves for satisfaction, but he missed one thing when it comes to being satisfied in your home. If you want to be satisfied in your home, you have to have a home in Unionville. A home in Unionville, that will satisfy you. Or some of you are like, no, no, you got to get out of Unionville. It's too busy. You got to go into the boonies. A home, you, got to, you got a few acres of land with a big house on it. That will satisfy you. Some of you guys are like, the boonies aren't far enough. you got to get up to Muskoka. Muskoka in the summer, oh man, that home will satisfy you. People in Muskoka right now are like, we got to get out of Muskoka. There's way too much snow. And we can fall into this lie, believing this lie that we'll be more happy if our home was just in a different place. But Solomon's declaration is this. He had homes everywhere and still it was vanity. If you place your hope for satisfaction... In a home, you'll be sorely disappointed. Now we get a sense in the text that Solomon is rebuilding the type of paradise that Adam and Eve lived in. And so he had all kinds of fruit trees. And this echoes back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with God and they were able to enjoy and glorify God and all the things that God had created for them. But there's one distinct difference in Solomon's garden. In Solomon's garden, he could, part, he could uh, eat anything he wanted. There was no tree that he wasn't allowed to eat from. All of these gardens were built with the express purpose of satisfying him. And so these weren't public gardens. These weren't for other people to enjoy. Every detail was uniquely crafted for Solomon's pleasure. Everything served the purpose of satisfying Solomon. So notice when you read through verses four to six, notice the self-centered language. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens. I made myself pools. Solomon built a paradise of great houses that were many in number and all perfectly served him. And still his declaration is this, it's meaningless. Now we are Foolish if we having infinitely less than Solomon has believe that we could be satisfied in having more. This is the foolish pursuit of believing that you can find satisfaction in the things of earth. Well, Solomon's not done his search yet. He still has one more experience to have and, and he experiences this as he searches for satisfaction in the things of earth. He experiences the empty promise of possessions. The last thing that Solomon wants to teach us as he tests all the things of earth is this, that even the promise of possessions and money can't bring satisfaction. And so in verse 7, he writes, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now, as Solomon talks about slavery, you need to know that the Bible doesn't condone the type of slavery our minds generally think of when we hear the word slavery. This wasn't the type of slavery that's been exhibited in the past several hundred years. This type of slavery was actually a lot closer to our employer-employee distinction that we have in our workplace. And Solomon is saying that he had countless servants that would wait on him hand and foot and would do any task that he didn't want to do. If Solomon wanted to take a day off, He had servants who could do it. Now, there are some people here who are like, okay, stop the search for satisfaction. We found it. If I had a servant who would clean the washroom anytime I wanted, I would be satisfied. But Solomon wants us to know that if you have servants that would do anything so that you had all the control in your life you could possibly have so that you could do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, still you would not be satisfied. In the 1970s, two psychologists named Edward L. D.C. and Richard M. Ryan, they set out to answer this question. They said, how can you be happy in life? Specifically, they're answering the question, how can you be happy in life when so much of your life is dedicated to work? And their conclusion, part of their answer came to be that you can be happy in life and in your work once you've attained autonomy. And they established that the more control you have over your schedule, over your time, over what you do, over where you go, the more control you have, the more happiness you will have in your work. And in many ways, we can buy into this lie, and this lie is promoted to us week in and week out, that if you can just uh, live the type of life where you can fly to any tropical destination at any time you want, then you'll be happy. If you can golf as much as you want, wherever you want, then you'll have find satisfaction. In our hearts, many of us agree with this conclusion. We imagine a life where we could do whatever we want and we could have satisfaction. We think if we just had the money and we just had the possessions and we just had the people who were working under us who made it possible for us to do whatever we wanted, then truly we would have found satisfaction. Well, Solomon tested the claim that those two psychologists made and he's here to say it doesn't satisfy. It's an empty promise. More control will not satisfy you. Now, next we see that Solomon had all the possessions that would show the world that he was rich. He says, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any before me in Jerusalem. And if having all the possessions of the world weren't enough, he also had all the money in the world. And so he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon committed to acquiring as much money and as much possessions as possible. He would be like the uh, man, John D. Rockefeller, who was once asked by a journalist, how much money is enough? To which he replied, just a little bit more. Now, as each of us commit to this search, as each of us try to get more money and more possessions, we get small tastes of its end. We, We realize that as we get more, that it doesn't satisfy the way that we thought it would. So much so that Benjamin Franklin wrote these words. He said, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want another way. Now, each of us, we know this to be true about the possessions that we currently have. But the problem is that we look forward to possessions that we possibly could possess, that we possibly could acquire, and we believe that maybe our future possessions could satisfy us. Maybe that next best car could satisfy us. Maybe that different home could satisfy us. Maybe that next promotion could finally satisfy us. You remember a time when my wife and I, we were a one-car family, and we both had different jobs and we had different places we need to be at the same time and so it was getting really complicated and really hard to survive as a one-car family. I remember thinking if I could just have a car for myself and Amber could have our car then I would be so satisfied. That would be amazing. I don't need like a sports car. I don't need anything nice. I just need you know something to get me from point A to point B. You turn it on you hit the gas pedal and it goes. I don't need to get there in style. Well I was thinking this and thinking I could be satisfied by having this car, and then I got my 2004 Honda Civic. And ever since then, I have slowly been realizing that the thing I once thought would satisfy will not satisfy. And it's slowly been breaking down since that day. In fact, this is true, and I've had multiple people, like, I don't know what you guys think of preachers as though they make up illustrations or something, but this is true, I didn't make this up, and I don't think any preacher ever makes up an illustration. But there was a day when, uh, I was driving, and I was driving to work, and my friend was coming with me. And and when you get the chance to drive an antique car, like a 2004 Honda Civic, you take that chance. And so my friend's like, can I have the keys? And I'm like, sure, you can drive this baby. And he takes the keys, he goes in the driver's seat, and I go into the passenger car, or passenger seat, and I go to open up the door, and the handle rips out in my hand. I'm like, what is going on here? Is this car breaking apart? And we get in the car. It's raining that day on this very same day. And the wipers are going. And as we're driving, my wiper flies off. And I kid you not, you could look at my car today. It is twist-tied on. I'm not talking about like a contractor-grade twist tie. I'm talking like a bread tie. As weak of a twist tie as you could possibly imagine, that is how my wiper is on. Over the last few months, my car battery has died so many times that people at the church office, they just park beside me because they assume if I'm going to make an exit from the church office, I'm going to need a boost to get out of there. (laughs) I've slowly been realizing that what I thought would satisfy me has not been satisfying to me. And Solomon wants to teach us that all the money in the world, all the possessions that you dream of could never satisfy the longing of your heart. Not only can money and possessions not satisfy you, Solomon wants you to know that people who live to serve you can't satisfy you. And so Solomon says this as he searches for satisfaction. He says, I also gathered for myself singers, both male and female. Now maybe you're thinking right now that having a bunch of male and female singers follow you around all day and sing to you isn't your idea of satisfaction. You're like, that's my idea of really creepy. But it's not only people serenading and singing to you that could be a way that you seek people for satisfaction. It's a tendency of the human heart to believe that other people can satisfy us. And I wonder if there's anyone in this room that right now you're placing your hope for satisfaction in somebody else. Even someone like a spouse or a family member or someone in your small group, you're placing your hope for satisfaction on them. This is why I always get concerned when I talk to people who who say they've been hurt at some other church or they've been hurt by this other person. Because I know that believing that you can be satisfied by another person is dangerous territory. That's why recently when our church, we uh, renamed ourselves and we're Redemption Church, I thought about suggesting that we add like a tagline to our church, like a slogan or something. So it's like, Redemption Church, you'll probably get hurt here too. And the reason why I thought that is because when you get 500 sinners in the same room, what's going to happen? They're going to sin against each other. And if there's not a river, a stream of forgiveness in, in a church, then we just can't exist as a community. For heaven's sake, we know what happens when you ask two sinners to stand in front of the altar and say, I do. A lot of sin happens. And then those two sinners, they breed little ankle-biting Sinners. And it's a family of sinners. And if there's not a spirit of forgiveness in this community, it cannot stand. And listen, if you're placing your hope for satisfaction in a person, you will be sorely disappointed. I hear all the wives in the room saying, amen. (laughs) Well, there is one person who can satisfy. There is one man who will never let you down. and His name is Jesus Christ. But that's a sermon for Jason to preach another week. And so we're going to move on. No problem, Jason. I just gave you a free sermon. Now, Solomon has one more place to test pleasure. At the end of verse 8, he says, he got many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. Now, Solomon, he had more sexual partners than anyone could ever imagine. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it gives us the raw data. It says he had 700 wives and princesses. He had more than 300 concubines. Solomon knew more than anyone that the next sexual experience would not satisfy him. That's why when he wrote Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, which really is like a parenting manual, this is like how to parent. Here's wisdom on parenting. And if you have children, you need to be like memorizing Proverbs 1 to 9 because this is God's manual for you on how to do it. But when Solomon wrote Proverbs 1 to 9, three of those chapters, that's 33% of Proverbs 1 to 9, is all about how to lead your kids in sexual purity. Because Solomon knew more than anyone in a world, by the way, where there's no devices that you could just like within four seconds get to a sexual experience. You actually had to go outside and knock on someone's door. In a world where it was way harder to, to buy into the lie that sexual experience could satisfy, Solomon spent 33% of his manual saying, keep your children away from the lure of believing that you can find satisfaction in another sexual partner, in another sexual experience. But now the one who holds a tiny glowing rectangle has access to more sexual partners than Solomon could have ever imagined. And there's a billion-dollar porn industry that's pouring this, uh, that's pouring all of their money into this lie that you will be satisfied with one more sexual experience. And Solomon wants us to know that there can be no satisfaction in the pursuit of the next sexual experience. Now Solomon's done his test, he's ready to include his findings. In verses 9 to 11, after the test is completed, after the search is over, the declaration is the same. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's striving after the wind. You cannot do it. You cannot accomplish it. You cannot get satisfaction from the things of earth. And the search for satisfaction in the things of earth is an exhausting search. And if you're on the search for satisfaction and you are seeking satisfaction in the things of earth, what you will one day discover is that you will die. And you can't bring the things of earth with you. In fact, once you die, you just become a thing of earth as you decompose into dust. And you've searched your whole life looking for satisfaction in the things of earth. And what Ecclesiastes forces us to consider and realize is that we cannot find satisfaction in them teaches us that the worldview of materialism is empty. That believing that you can find joy in the material things of earth is a lie. But it leaves us with the question, how can I find satisfaction? Or Maybe more importantly, why do I find satisfaction in the things of earth? Now, some people, they see Solomon's teaching, and and in order to get away from materialism, they embrace this escapism. And one of the ways that escapism has made a resurgence in our culture is through this idea that minimalism is the path to satisfaction, that you will be happy when you have a tiny little trailer with one knife, fork, and spoon, one pair of clothes, and a backpack. And I'm telling you, minimalism is on the rise and there are many who are buying into the lie that the things of earth are actually evil and the only way you can have satisfaction and happiness is if you get rid of as much as you possibly can without starving and dying. But this isn't the, re- the solution that Solomon ends with and it's not the solution that scripture ends with. In fact, Paul is able to write to Timothy for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And Solomon gets to the answer once he reaches verse 24 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says this, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Listen to this church. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. See, what Solomon ultimately wants to teach us through his search this morning is this, that we can enjoy the things of earth when we're able to look through the things of earth to the goodness of the Creator who gave us the things of earth. We can find satisfaction when we look through these things and see our good and heavenly Father. And so, Augustine, he writes this. I love this. He says, This is how our souls climb out of their weariness towards you and cease to lean on the things you created. We pass through them to you, Lord God, who created them in a marvelous way. See, once you know the giver of good things, you're freed to actually enjoy the thing itself because through the thing that you are enjoying, you are actually glorifying the giver of all good gifts. But the only way that you can enjoy the gifts that God gives is if you know the Father. And the only way that you can know the Father is if he reveals himself to you. And I have amazing news for you this morning that God has revealed himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, You see, the man Jesus Christ came to this earth and he came so that he could live the life of righteousness that you as a sinner needed in order to stand in front of a holy God. Jesus came so that he could die the death that you needed to pay in order to pay for the penalty of your sins. Jesus came with the mercy that we required as we begged the Father to give us eternal life. He came with the grace that we did not deserve as we received the gift of eternal life in him. And as Jesus came and died and was resurrected, the floodgates were opened for sinners to come and to place their faith in him and to finally know the Father. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father and there are some here this morning who need to hear that because you've been living your whole life searching for satisfaction and you haven't known this one man who can truly provide it Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. The one man who is enough to eternally satisfy you. Mm-hmm. And this man, he calls you this morning. And in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2, he says these words Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Listen, would you come to the one who invites you to finally experience satisfaction in him? In this moment, you can place your faith in him. And in this moment, the floodgates of joy and satisfaction and pleasure will be opened to you through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, once you know God, once you walk with God, the things of earth, they become vehicles for his glory. The things of earth, they declare the greatness of the one who gave them. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, creation preaches God's glory. So that everything you could possibly experience on this earth, what it's doing is it's like it has a megaphone, and it's saying, God is so great. As you're experiencing this thing, you're realizing the goodness of the God who gave them. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Because when you experience the things of earth, you are being preached a message of God's infinite and eternal glory. I love what Jonathan Edwards writes. Regarding this, he says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, and we could add to this list, all the things of earth are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. See, once you know God through Christ, you look through the things of earth to the glory of God, and you're actually able to experience pleasure because you are living in the way that God created to live you to live. You're giving glory to the Father. And so John Piper helps us practically understand how this works. He says, all of God's creation becomes a beam to be looked along, a sound to be heard along, or a fragrance to be smelled along, or a flavor to be tasted along, or a touch to be felt along. All our sense become partners with the eyes of the heart in perceiving the glory of God through the physical world. See, what Solomon has done for us this morning is he has unleashed our potential to experience joy and satisfaction and pleasure in the things of earth. And there are some here who need to be freed, like I was freed, from believing that experiencing joy in the things of this earth is an evil thing. And some of us need to be freed to the reality and the truth that when you are playing with your children and you have so much joy in that moment and you're having so much fun in that moment and you're not on your knees, your hands aren't lifted to the heavens, you're not singing a praise song, you're watching Paw Patrol. In that moment, you are bringing great glory to the God who gave you that good gift for you to enjoy. Many of us need to be freed to participate in a hobby, to play a sport, and to have our focus fully in that thing, realizing when we break focus for a moment that the reason why we're so happy at this moment, the reason why we have so much satisfaction at that moment is because there is a good God in the heavens who gave us that gift to point to how amazing and glorious he is. See. The gospel frees us from the guilt of materialism and the foolishness of escapism and minimalism and unlocks for us the pleasure that can come in our play, the true joy that we can find in our property. Shows us that it's okay to enjoy all the things of earth when it points to the glory of the God who gave it. Let's pray. Father, we do, God. We glorify your name for who you are. And we give you thanks for your goodness. Lord, it is so abundant towards us and supreme above all the things that you gave to us is Jesus Christ, the Son. God, we thank you for him, for through him we know you. And through him, we can experience the satisfaction that only comes from a relationship with you as we were created to live. And so, God, we take this time to declare from the depths of our soul, Lord, that Jesus Christ is enough for us, him and him alone. Lord, that we're leaving behind us the past ways that we made idols of the things of earth. God, we're confessing the sin that so often we have worshipped the gift instead of worshipping the giver that our love and our affections have been so out of place. They have been for the small and minimal things of this earth when your glory is booming from the heavens and you are calling us to finally be satisfied in you. And so, God, we declare this, that Jesus is enough to respond to you now and say, God, that we believe it. We believe it, God. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.